This is a story about an important development in the history of the Mac. But what makes it really notable is where the innovation came from. This is the story about the time when the innovation didn't come from Cupertino, but from a tiny company in a little town 50 miles outside of Atlanta, Georgia. This is 20 Max for 2020. I'm Jason Snell. This is number 15, the Daystar Genesis MP. The microprocessor is the brain of a computer, and one of the major narrative arcs in the development of the computer industry is the increase of processor power over time. Now, my first computer's processor ran at one megahertz. In other words, it was able to perform operations a million times a second. This seems like a lot, but it's actually stunningly slow by today's standards. My first Mac was eight times faster because its Motorola 68000 processor ran at eight megahertz. My first PowerBook ran at 25 megahertz. And for a while in the early days of the computing industry, that's how it went. Chips kept getting faster because the clock speeds got faster. But the pace of innovation in clock speed was slowing. So how do you make a computer faster if you can't make the chips any faster? The answer, of course, is to use more chips. Stick two or even four of those chips inside that computer to make it faster. Here's John Syracuse. A multiprocessor was inevitable on the Mac and on PCs in general, just because the processors were, you know, the, like whatever, Moore's law. You could fit more transistors per unit area year after year after year, right? It was always going to happen, and CPU designers have anticipated this, because there's a bunch of stuff you have to do as a CPU designer to make it more feasible to have two CPUs uh, in a computer at the same time. Every CPU has its own little scratch pad of local information that it's keeping track of. But if you've got two CPUs in a system, now maybe there's something on one scratch pad and it's different on another scratch pad. And the CPUs need a way to resolve that. They either need to know about what's going on inside each other's things or they need to have some way to invalidate each other's little local caches of things or the operating system needs to understand that these are two separate worlds and really keep them separate. There's lots of different ways you can figure this out, but you have to do something because if you don't, it's just mass chaos. Like you'd send something to one processor and something to another and they'd have no idea what the other one was doing and it would just be a complete mess. In the early 90s, the PowerPC alliance of Apple, IBM, and Motorola designed the PowerPC 601, the first PowerPC processor to appear in the Mac. While the 601 was missing some features that were required for multiprocessing, there were new chips on the horizon, most specifically the PowerPC 603 and 604, which did promise multiprocessing features. But the Mac OS it had no idea. Classic Mac OS was not particularly well suited to have multiple processors and multiple different sets of instructions going to the different processors. That's not kind of the way Mac OS worked. It was very regimented where everybody took turns in, in a single file line where you had to yield control to another application and the application had to yield control to the operating system. It was very, very primitive. It wasn't as if the operating system was playing traffic cop. An application could grab the CPU and just not surrender it. And if an application has that kind of power, you didn't have something in the operating system that was delegating and managing traffic and saying, okay, you're going to go there and you're going to go here and I'm going to put this process in the CPU and this process in that CPU. So anything that worked with classic macOS really benefited from a simple set of rules. Like most personal computing operating systems of that era, macOS had been built to assume there was only a single processor inside the computer because that's all there had ever been. 
Which brings us to Flowery Branch, Georgia, which in the mid-1990s had a population of less than 2,000 people. It was the home of a company named Daystar Digital, which had made its name selling add-in cards that would make Macs run faster. Oh, and there was good barbecue, too. We used to have editors come in from California, and they'd always come in on a, on a Friday or Thursday, because they always loved to go up to Smokehouse Barbecue. This is Andrew Lewis, who was the CEO of Daystar Digital. And Smokehouse was only open on Thursdays and Fridays. So they come in to sell ads, or sometimes we got an award or editorial award or something, they would come in. Yeah, I went there. This is Rick LePage, who was the editor of MacWeek back then and went on to be the editor-in-chief at Macworld and my boss for many years. I went to Flowery Branch, yeah. When I was a reviews editor at, at MacWeek, you know, I would go off and do these tours where I would go visit developers, and it was to sort of show that we didn't just want to see them at Macworld Expo. And I remember going to, to Flowery Branch. When Apple switched to PowerPC processors in the early 90s, it designed its PowerMax to have the processor on a separate daughter card, presumably to make them easier to build and configure. This was a great opportunity for Daystar, since it made it even easier for Daystar to sell processor upgrades for those Macs. They started doing some of their own cards for economy of scale and production, and that made it really easy for us to drop in a card, and we really began to take off with that. Most of Daystar Digital sales were to high-end professional users who would pay a lot of money to make their Macs even a little bit faster, because every added bit of processing power saved them time and therefore money. This is an era where running a single Photoshop filter could take minutes on even the fastest computers. So, Daystar Digital decided to build a processor card with not one, but two processors on it. The first Mac multiprocessing card. We already were hacking the Mac firmware to put these cards in so we could unplug one processor and put in another. Well, then we added a second one. Now, when I was researching this story, reading through old text archives of MacWeek, paging through old issues of Macworld and MacUser, I kept finding conflicting reports about how it came to be that support for multiprocessing on the Mac was created by someone that wasn't Apple. Some reports suggested that Daystar Digital had invented this itself, but others suggested Apple helped out or even began the project itself before handing it off to Daystar. A subscription to LinkedIn Premium later, I tracked down two people who worked at Daystar Digital in the 90s, Andrew Lewis, who was the CEO, and Irvin Kranzler, who led Daystar's software team at the time. The PowerMax came out, and they had the processor on a card. And when they designed it, they designed it so that you could put a, a dual processor card in there if you wanted to. But there was no software to support it, and nobody at Apple was really talking about it. And I know Andrew had the idea, hey, let's do a multiprocessing card. At the time, he was like, let's use one processor for, for Photoshop acceleration. You know, it's funny to think of it now, but Photoshop filters used to take minutes to run. And he was like, oh, let's see if we can do it in seconds instead of minutes, right, with another processor. But Mac OS was built to run on a single processor, so you could plug in a card with two processors on it, but the Mac would only ever use one of them. What happened next is pretty remarkable. Daystar Digital, this little company in Flowery Branch, Georgia, wrote its own software to allow Mac apps to send work to that second processor. So Windows NT was really taking off. The, the power of a threaded OS was really good. So they began to see the need to respond to that. And so we had this API we'd set up for all these vendors to work with. But we didn't know that Apple was really paying any attention to us. And they came to us and they said, if we worked with you and gave you the official interface for this one slot, could we take your API and we'd help you upgrade your API? And so we said, sure. I was always very much in the collaboration. So they, we gave them what we had. They put their code into it, gave us the source code. 
and it made it more robust. Because we had the information about how the PowerMax worked, we started writing this multiprocessing kernel. It wasn't symmetric. We had to have one processor running Mac OS and then interfaces to be able to, to spawn tasks on other processors. Can you imagine something as significant as supporting more than one processor not coming from Apple, but coming from a third party? And them writing their own sort of driver for an operating system that has no idea what to do with multiple processors so that programs like Photoshop is like a third party makes this hardware. And they talk to Adobe who makes sure that Adobe's Photoshop understands the hardware so that you can run things twice as fast on two processors. But that's exactly what Daystar did through the work of David Sowell, who wrote the microprocessing kernel, and Chris Cooksey, who wrote a bunch of multiprocessor-aware Photoshop filters. Here's John Gruber from Daring Fireball. Going from single processing, where the computer has one CPU and all the software gets in one line to go through the CPU for processing, to multi-processing, where things can run in parallel on multiple CPUs, to have that added by a third party is bananas. And that's what happened. They actually had developed another machine they hadn't released with a two-processor card and designed it themselves. And so they said, not only do we want you to upgrade... Uh, you know, what you have or support this, but we're going to give you the schematics and design of another card if you'll build it for us and supply us. So that was a really nice contract. They built the single processor card in-house. We gave us the second, which we supplied them. And then we were free to also sell that as an upgrade. So here's where we are so far. A third-party maker of upgrade cards was so aggressive with figuring out Mac hardware so that it could create accelerators for its high-end customers in the publishing industry that Apple approaches it for help adding multiprocessing to the Mac. That company writes its own software to add multiprocessing to classic Mac OS, which Apple licenses back from them. And then Apple doesn't even build the multiprocessing card that will go in their first multiprocessor Mac. They have the third-party upgrade card maker do the job for them. What a feather in Daystar Digital's cap. But... You have to wonder just how broken Apple was in the mid-90s to have to rely on a third party to do something this important to Apple's bread-and-butter business, which was high-end publishing. That is truly bananas in hindsight and just shows—I'm not even sure that that shows dysfunction within Apple, but it sort of just shows what a Wild West scenario the Mac and Apple was in the mid-90s. Okay, so you're saying to yourself, Jason, this is a great history lesson. What does this have to do with one of 20 Macs? The answer is that the mid-1990s were the era of Mac clones. And Daystar Digital decided it was going to abandon its successful upgrade card business and instead start making a Mac clone with two or four processors using the multiprocessing software it had created and the new PowerPC 604 processor, which also supported multiprocessing. That computer was the Daystar Genesis MP. It was huge, expensive, and powerful. Exactly what a high-end media professional in the mid-1990s hungered for. And while you could buy a Genesis MP with two processors, what you really wanted was the one with four. The accelerator market was pretty strong, and we were, we were fairly dominant in the places where we played. But Andrew always wanted a clone license. I'm a systems guy, I guess. I just wanted to build a computer. That was his goal from the time I got to Daystar. He saw, and we thought he was nuts, but he kept pushing forward and he kept making connections and he, he eventually made it happen. It was pretty exciting to be able to build something like that and add some value to the marketplace where 
there was a need that wasn't being met and it did get other people thinking about, Hey, how can we make you some more processing power? So we built it knowing that we would ultimately build something with more than two. So the clone license happened and, and we did four instead of two. Genesis had a dual and a quad option, but effectively the, the dual was not that interesting to most people. They wanted the quad. The Daystar Genesis MP was the first multiprocessor Mac to ship. Shipped a year before Apple shipped its first multiprocessor Mac, the Power Mac 9500 MP. Started at $7,000 and the highest in model cost, $17,000. That's about $28,000 in 2020 dollars. If you're asking yourself how Apple could allow another company to eat its lunch when it came to selling computers to its most profitable, high-end customer base, well, welcome. You are doing the right thing. This is the premise of the Mac clone market. Apple thought it could expand the size of the Mac market by letting other companies build Mac hardware, but most of those companies immediately focused on the most profitable segments of Apple's markets and tried to beat Apple at its own game. They weren't focused on that market, right? They were focused on the mass market. And our customers, because of the accelerators, they wanted the high end of everything. So any extra performance they could squeeze. And, and we got some really great performance out of the Photoshop filters that we did. In the time, it didn't seem that crazy. It just seemed like, oh, yeah, of course, Daystar would do this. They've been making high-end cards and stuff like that for the Mac for years. It made a lot more sense at the time. When Steve Jobs came back to Apple, one of his first moves was to kill the clones. And that spelled the end for Daystar Digital. The company sold off its inventory of Genesis MPs and largely shut down. By shutting down the upgrade business, uh, we put everything on the clone side. And, and so then we got notice that it was going to, we weren't going to get a renewal. I realized that, you know, we were kind of trapped. When Jobs pulled the plug on the clones, that was the end of that. You know, we were kind of betting on the clone at that point. And it was probably just a company that was going to have a limited life no matter what. We burned the bridge behind us. So we just paid our bills. They didn't go bankrupt or anything. And just, I was kind of done with it. There were these people out there who were doing these really cool, inventive things. They were developing new technologies. They were using the fastest chips. They were adding things like special caches and stuff like that to eke the extra bit of performance out of things. That was a really interesting time. I mean, it was early enough in my career that I, I didn't have a whole lot to compare it to. And now having worked at a million places since then, we had a lot of the problems that startups have and <laughs> the roof in our building leaked. It had been a police firing range and a boot factory. And there's, there are all kinds of crazy stories, but a lot of really smart, hardworking people from this little podunk town in Georgia. It was really interesting to be able to make all that happen. Mac OS X supports multiple processors natively, and over the years, Apple has increased the system's ability to dispatch work to multiple processor cores to work the most efficiently. And of course, we don't use multiple processors anymore. Processor designers realize they'd be better off adding multiple cores to individual chips. So today, my iMac Pro has one chip with eight cores on it. My iPhone has six cores. Multiprocessing is everywhere. So... Daystar Digital's legacy lives on. When I was researching the story, I was searching my Mac for references to Daystar Digital in the various archive files I have on my drive, when a few strange header files from old installations of Xcode and OS X cropped up. And there it was, plain as day, multiprocessinginfo.h, deprecated but still listed, copyright 1995 to 2011, Daystar Digital Incorporated. 
14 years after this all went down, long after the company itself had faded away, Daystar Digital was still in there. Its contribution forgotten, but not gone. This has been 20 Max for 2020. It was written by me, Jason Snell. My thanks to John Syracusa, John Gruber, and Rick LePage. And special thanks to Andrew Lewis and Irvin Kranzler for talking to me about their time in Flowery Branch, Georgia. Brian Hamilton provided some post-production help. You can see this entire series at sixcolors.com slash 20max. I'll be back next week with number 14. 14.